Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Claudia! How y'all doing? Cloudy, we wanted to speak to you because we just love you. But also because we're both so in love with your journey and how you've had all these different things in your life that you love and that you've pursued. And it feels like now you've come to this place where you're incorporating so many of them together in one place. And it's really cool because when you look at them individually, or if you would have looked at them individually at any point in time, it, it would be hard to see how you could do it in any other way than the traditional way you do that thing, like social justice or, but you've kind of become this beautiful hybrid and you've created this, like a Claudia role in the world that I'm sure there will be more Claudias to come after you now because of it. That's so sweet. It's such a sweet like rendering of the journey because I think for a long time in my life, people probably saw all the things I was doing and thought she's scatterbrained or something, you know, like she's all over the place, maybe doesn't have a focus. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I just mean like normally people are sort of, they do a thing and they do that thing well. And I was sort of in a lot of spaces, not doing any of them, you know, spectacularly well, but knowing that I had a spot somewhere in there. And I just always knew myself that I was doing all the things that sort of fit with me, but I didn't really know how to externalize that narrative of like, I promise you it all makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, they fit together. I mean, I also admire the extraordinary example that you are of being multifaceted. So even though like from a professional standpoint, like your origin in social justice was justice, you know, from the the legal structures and systems and, you know, inhabiting them as you did. And then also you're such a creative. And it's amazing to me how you reflect these pieces along the way. They all seem to work together. I can't imagine now, like Smishy, I'm sure you feel the same way. I can't imagine what you would be like if you hadn't done it this way. Because mm-hmm. no one area is big enough for all those facets to fit in. You know, it's funny listening to y'all. I'm like, I mean, isn't this just all of us? Aren't we all like this? Or are we all just like doing so many things that are part of our design and part of our mission? And then at some point, hopefully, it all sort of makes sense. Is there anything really unique about this? I mean, except for, of course, I'm a unique person. I know that. But is there anything unique about this journey in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing too. I think when when it comes so naturally to somebody like it has for you, that's the first thing they say. But mm. it's like, wait, but am I so different actually? <laughs> and it's like, yes. <laughs> actually, yes. It's definitely not the norm. Okay, well, let's pull it back. When did justice first occur as a theme? Really so young that I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to like nail it down without the help of people who can see better than me. Even as a child, I already had sort of strong ideas of fairness, justice, 
equality, maybe even equity. I didn't have that language as a child, but I knew, you know, that certain things in order to be fair, they may look uneven, but according to the needs that were present, you know, some level of equity was needed. I also was partly raised in El Salvador during the civil war and having conversations at a very young age about who the guerrilleros were, who were the communist freedom fighters in El Salvador, and also the national army um, who was fighting back against them. And the conversation was sort of very black and white then, but then, you know, as I grew older, it became more and more nuanced, the more conversations I had. So I was exposed to these ideas at a very young age, living in the middle of it. And also my mother, who had four children by the age of 22, you know, got pregnant at 16 with my older sister, Julia. She raised us to be thinking about sort of fairness and what's right and what's wrong, not not necessarily just like in a moral way, like what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do, but how to respond when there's some sort of injustice. You know, even within the four of us, she made sure that our voices were heard, even when we were young, to make family decisions. If we were going to like do something fun on a Saturday afternoon, she asked us each what we wanted to do and made a decision together. So I feel like from a very young age, I recognize the power of democracy <laughs> without that language, you know, but it was there. Hmm. Was there like a particular memory of injustice that turned your thinking about injustice into, oh, I think I'm going to help stop or create justice and stop injustice? I remember talking about activism in middle school and writing about it. I was very concerned about poverty. We grew up fairly poor with the assistance of the government sometimes call me crazy. I still love the memory of government cheese. It was delicious when I was a kid. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> and I think it's one of those things, like if I go back and eat it now, it'd be gross. Like Snickers. I always think it's going to be so much better, but when I eat it, it's like not as good as I remember as a kid. So I'm sure that would be true about that block cheese, but my memories of it are that it was delicious. But I had a very keen understanding of poverty and lack of resources and what that feels like you know, living in a two-bedroom shack-ish where the four of us slept in one room. There were rats, there were cockroaches. My mom actually shot rats with a BB gun in order to help keep us safe at night and so that we'd be able to sleep. As she, she was an immigrant, uh, one of eight that came over from El Salvador with uh, her parents. So it was, you know, one of those things where they had to work really hard. She had multiple jobs. She worked nights. She would come home after working at maybe four in the morning. So we learned how to be really quiet so that she'd be able to sleep in. But because she worked so much and the opportunities were available to her, and when her and my stepdad joined forces, they were able to move us into a different neighborhood from Union City to Foster City. And that's when the difference was stark because I ended up in a community that was mostly middle class slash affluent, way more white people than I'd ever seen in my whole life way more East Asians, very few Latinx folks, very few Black people. And so when we ended up there, I was like, oh, hold up. <laughs> Something is not right here. <laughs> like, what are you doing in a house like this? Why do you guys need so much space? Why do you have all these things? What is this? Not really feeling like there was anything other than injustice that could explain the difference. Mm -hmm. 
It wasn't how hard people worked. It wasn't how smart they were. It wasn't how much they loved their families. It wasn't their thirst for, you know, evolution and education and knowledge or anything. It, it truly had to be systemic. Yeah. And then to get on a law school track takes a whole lot of conviction. I mean, so much energy, not to mention resources, but every kind of resource. What made you decide to funnel into specifically that? I wonder if it was a decision. I can't pinpoint a moment where I thought I'm going to go to law school, but it feels like it was always there. You know how some of your friendships or some of the people in your life, you can't even totally remember how your friendship started because you're like, we've always known each other because probably we hung out in different worlds or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like being a lawyer. It was almost a foregone conclusion I was going to go to law school. And it was not because this is what many of my students when I'm writing letters of recommendation tell me. It's not because everybody told me you argue all the time you should be a lawyer. That wasn't it. And I didn't have lawyers in my life growing up save for the public defenders that sort of came in and out when family members got caught up with the criminal legal system. But I didn't know any like practicing lawyers. I wasn't mentored by them, but it was just always sort of there. And I was making a decision between going to law school and perhaps pursuing some sort of creative thing. When I first started undergrad, I thought I was going to film school to make documentaries about social justice issues. That was my plan. And when I worked in the film industry, well, the film festival industry, I realized I just didn't really have the constitution as a person to pursue film because I knew people who were putting everything they had into it. They were maxing out credit cards and putting hundreds of hours into their projects. And then it may or may not go anywhere. People will watch it. Maybe, maybe nobody will ever see it again. Who, baby, I couldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And so I ended up from there um, pursuing sociology and ethics studies at Mills College and pretty clear that I was going to be going to law school. There was also moments in my organizing work, I was doing grassroots organizing in, in Oakland in the Bay Area. And in many of the situations, the lawyers who were part of the team that was working on a particular issue that we were addressing, they were very helpful in ways that I really admired just the knowledge set that they brought to the table, just the tools they had were different from some of the other tools. So the entire time that I was planning to go to law school, I never, it was never like a a dream to be in a courtroom and make dramatic closing statements. That was never the drive. It was always to add more tools to my tool belt. And what kind of law did you end up pursuing or studying? I uh, was part of the public interest program at UCLA and also the critical race studies specialization. So amazing what's happening with critical race theory right now. I'm still so amazed. Like, wow, people are talking about it in these ways. Who knew that like (laughs) a nerdy, (laughs) you know, like a nerdy set of theories could catch so much tension on a national slash global scale. But post-law school, I ended up at the Equal Justice Society in the Bay Area as the Constance Baker Motley Civil Rights Fellow. I did a lot of work around um, disparate treatment and the intent doctrine and other cool, nerdy civil rights stuff that I really loved. And then I led the California Civil Rights Coalition for years. And then you started your own, right? Yeah. A colleague and I, Beth Rebay, started an organization called Repair. The mission of that organization was to do research on, to educate folks, to raise consciousness around the ideas that systems of oppression, systems of power, like racism, like sexism, 
classism, ableism, transphobia, homophobia, how they make people sick, how it actually like causes illness and causes disability and on an individual scale, but also on a collective scale. Like entire communities are impacted physiologically by the harm that we cause one another. I love that. Me too. And I love that it's getting to be more accessible knowledge. So it's not just the elite who know about it or administrators, but the populations of people so we can make decisions as populations and not just wait for the higher ups to, you know, for that to trickle down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's they're really, um, I, so I teach inside of a, a federal prison this quarter. I'm in Victorville Federal Prison. And uh, just yesterday in class, the women were talking about some of the healthcare injustices that they face. And one of them in the middle of this conversation was like, I mean, we have to do something about it. No one else is going to. And it's such a beautiful thing to watch. Like, yes, you got it. That's exactly it. The higher ups will never do anything about it. People love status quo. You know, people who are being served by keeping things as they are will never, maybe I should not say never. Sometimes they are inspired to do the right thing. Often it serves people's purposes and sort of their agendas and the space they hold to just keep things as they are. Um, until the people who are suffering the most or, you know, most vulnerable um, really, you know, um, take their empowerment onto a path that shines light on what they're facing and the solutions come from them. Claudia, I wonder about how did you transition and know that making those changes uh, would transition? It seems to me, and I'm thinking about many conversations we've had about uh, whenever you mention the teaching work you do, you light up more about the teaching work than in actually the political arena when you work in that. Uh, how did you transition to that? And is that true? Because you really, uh, I'm wondering about how you experience that. Mm, that's so sweet. It is true that I light up more when I'm talking about but it's because I'm talking about my students, you know, and how amazing they are. That's the thing that excites me. Mm. It's less about my role as like the facilitator or the teacher. Although there are moments where if I happen to say something that moves somebody and I see the light bulb go off, then it's like, then it's a dual thing, right? I'm really happy that I have those tools to help light that light bulb. And it's their experience and what they're sharing. But most of the time, I'm just really in admiration of the students, especially the students who are incarcerated, because they will blow anyone's minds. <laughs> but I think that you're right in terms of the political work that I've done has always been fraught. The organizing work, though I'm still very committed to it, they're not perfect spaces either. You know, much of what we activists who are addressing the issues that I hope to address or have my little fingerprint or footprint as part of the movement work. Many of the things that we're trying to address, we're not amazing at doing it with each other yet. You know, we might promote these ideas of human dignity and the ideals of transformative justice are really beautiful about compassion and empathy and respecting that everybody has something to bring that is worthy and it's true that we all believe in it. You know, folks working towards 
these realities and manifesting them really do believe in it, but people have their stuff too. People have their struggles and their traumas. And so, you know, our spaces are also places where we feel loved and are harmed at the same time. Something that struck me for such a long time prior to these last few years was that you were so into all this work, but you also had this whole other side of you outside of work that was one of the things that I was in love with, which is how you dressed and how you're probably one of the best thrifters I've ever met in my entire life and how you wear these beautiful, colorful, out-the-box outfits where from the outside looking in from a very sort of surface view, anybody that would see you would think that you were in the fashion industry or you were an art mom or, you know, something. (laughs) (laughs) An art teacher. (laughs) Yeah, because you're so colorful and so much of your expression comes from you know, how you put yourself together. And then I remember there was a number of times where you were either going to do professor work where you had to teach your students or even, you know, doing like work work at whatever organization that you were working with at the time. And you had a different set of outfits or shoes or whatever. And I was, and there was this like great divide between the real you and then who you would be when you had to go to work. And that was always so strange to me because I'm like, how can she separate that? I totally get that you did because those kinds of spaces aren't really, they might not accept what you have to say or take you as seriously. Maybe if you do walk in wearing a big colorful dress, (laughs) (laughs) but how did that come about? Were you always like that as a kid? Were you, cause you not only love dressing yourself that way and finding ways to express yourself through fashion and clothing, but you love doing it for other people. I mean, every single time you go, I mean, just at the beginning of this conversation, you were like, oh, I got you these earrings too. Or you think of people in your community and you buy them things and you accompany people to like redo their closets and it could literally be a full-time career of a thing because you're so good at it. <laughs> this is a good one. So true. You're so multifaceted. Like each one of those things could be a full-out career. Yes. Okay, wait, I want to answer Melody's question, but Julie, you just made me think of how many times in my life people have been like, you should do this. And every time someone did that, it would freak me out because I'd be like, only that? (laughs) I can't imagine doing, if that was one of the eight things I was doing, I would love it. If you're going to tell me that's all I can do, I hate it. (laughs) And that would be true for this. You know, even recently, I was trying to make the decision whether I was going to go tenure track. And some of the folks I was in conversation with were like, I don't know, you know, you'll have to drop a lot of the other things that you do in order to attend faculty meetings and, you know, a bunch of other stuff that I know for sure I do not want to do. And, but when I thought about like just doing that, mm -mm, it wasn't right. Not in a commitment sort of way. I don't think I'm commitment phobic, but just, it felt like a narrowing of who I am and what I can bring. And thinking about um, sartorial choices now, as a kid, I definitely dressed like this. And my mom always supported me wearing whatever I wanted, which is amazing. I don't know how she did that. Maybe because she was so young herself. (laughs) 
but she let me wear whatever. And it was always nuts. Like I would layer stuff and, you know, pants and a skirt and a scarf or whatever. And from a very young age, I I wanted to do all the shopping for myself when we were growing up my mom would give us a certain amount of money and take us to a thrift store. And that was our back to school shopping. And oftentimes it was a, you know, a small amount and I would make it stretch. <laughs> my brothers would get like one or two items with their stuff. And I'd be like 13 items. <laughs> <with the amount. laughs> so it was, you know, I got trained young and that's why even to this day, I still prefer shopping at thrift stores or like used stores. I just can't bring myself to shop at department stores to pay full price for anything. (laughs) Um, But I'm so glad that you asked that because I've gone in and out with my relationship about not just the way I dress, but with my wardrobe. Because for me, it always has been like a creative expression. You know, it's part of who I am. It's part of how I show up. Part of my joy in life is when I wear something and people say, that dress makes me happy. And I'm like, yes, I nailed today. <laughs> today is great because someone is happy based on a choice that I made. Um, and then there have been times, especially because of professional spaces, where I even became a little judgmental of myself. Of like, mm-hmm. why do I have so many things? Number one. Number two, am I being this loud because I need the attention? It didn't feel like it, but, you know, you just like start to internalize things that you hear around you and other people's judgments and perceptions and maybe even projections. So there's been moments in my life. Luckily, they are more long time ago at this point than current. But there have been times where I maybe um, tamped it down a bit mm. in this like self-censorship sort of way that was that now that I think about it is kind of sad. <laughs> But the other thing is that in some professional spaces, I do still, I have different needs around the way that I present that look very different from my everyday life or my evening life. But it's less so because of what other people need from me and more what I need to present, you know, more of what I have to give. Like, let us not be distracted by this other thing. What I really want you to learn today is the American Disabilities (laughs) You know, let's talk about the ADA today. (laughs) And plus, it's like speaking a language. Just because you can speak that language doesn't mean you speak it everywhere. Yeah. I love that flexibility. But I have seen you on your way to work when you're presenting. And even when you're in a conservative space, you have your own flair and flavor going on. I was just going to say, there's still a flair. (laughs) I can't get away from it. Julie, really quick, I wanted to answer your question from before, which was like how you went from doing political work to teaching. Yeah. That transition, you know, that I've been doing workshops for young people for a long time. And it wasn't until years later that I realized it was a form of teaching. And even like in middle school and high school, I was often like the peer mediator or the peer presenter or whatever. So teaching had always been a part of what I do, part of my blueprint, as I've been told by very talented people Um, and transitioning from doing the political work to more teaching was a little bit difficult because I didn't want to let go of the organizing work or the political work. It really informs the way that I teach. So now the ways in which I practice much of my, much of the things that I was advocating for, I manifest them in the class. So it still feels like a form of activism, so to speak. 
I'm quite irreverent when it comes to like ivory tower notions or these like, you know, sort of Eurocentric models of academia and what is honorable and respectable. For example, I don't, I don't require my students to attend class. I think they should come if they want. <laughs> and if they don't want, they don't have to. And that's not a popular idea, but these are adults. They're human beings with their own lives. And I feel like human dignity sort of requires for people to make choices about their life. Yeah, so revolutionary. And I mean, you're also very gifted as a poet. Y'all know I'm not going to have much to say to this. I agree about being a someone who dresses with flair. And I actually think I am a good teacher. And I've done a, done a lot of work around activism, but a great poet, I don't know. <laughs> or even a great writer. I think we've made a big mistake in society by saying who is good at any form of art. You know, my dad, who is an artist, always said, it's art if you think it's art. So I do think you're gifted having listened to your works and read some of your pieces. Again, it's almost like you're one of those mirrors inside of mirrors inside of mirrors because in your work, in your languaging is the knowledge you possess in other areas. You can see it reflected there everywhere. It's never, you're never deviating from who you are. You're just allowing more people to share what you are by expressing it in a, like a, a new kind of uh, domain, which I love. But what led you to even invest? You know, it takes time to craft words. You know, why do you take the time? What what led to that? You guys are really good at this. I want you to know. You're really good at this. <laughs> I just felt so emotional thinking about writing. I feel so much more vulnerable than anything I do. I rarely ever talk about it publicly. I think like anybody who bothers to string words together, I'm a great reader. People who write always talk about how much they love reading. And then when you're a reader and you love to read nonstop, you're like, maybe I can try. So I started reading at a young age. I read books like for reals books at a very young age. The Color Purple was my favorite book by like fourth grade. Oh my gosh. I know. Thinking about it now, I'm like, that's not, <laughs> maybe not what a fourth grader should be reading. <laughs> but I'd read it five times by the time I got to middle school. So I started writing fairly young in elementary school. I said, so you're reading The Color Purple by the fourth grade. And then by the time you hit your 40s, you were reading Twilight series. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I love it. I've told both of y'all this before, but I become friends with the characters in these books and novels. These are worlds that I live in. And when I need comfort and I pick up an old novel and I hang out with Celia and Suge or I hang out with Bella. <laughs> <laughs> but I started writing creative stories in elementary school. I think they weren't totally creative, but they were called creative stories in third grade. As many people do when they start writing, I basically was like regurgitating ideas I'd read somewhere else and putting different names and different endings. And then I wrote a bit in middle school and got some great feedback. But something happened and I don't know what it was. I stopped writing for a bit and I stopped 
thinking of myself as a writer in the moment and started thinking about it as like in the future. I'm going to write in the future. And then in college, I pursued poetry and I did spoken word and I performed and I was on a spoken word album. Then something happened again when I moved to New York and then I put it down again. And I think it's this thing about everything else that I do in life, not everything, but most of what I do in life, it doesn't really matter to me whether people like it or not. I love it when my outfit brings happiness to people. I don't care when people don't like what I'm wearing. I love it when my students give me great evaluations for my class. The ones who complain, I'm like, whatever. (laughs) Not because I don't care about their opinions, but the things that they're saying don't line up with the way that I see things or don't resonate with me. So I'm very good at telling people, that sounds like it's yours. You can go ahead and keep it. I'll take the things that make sense. When it comes to writing, I'm so much more sensitive and so much more vulnerable. I'm so easily impacted or affected that it's, Not an easy thing to continue to do. That makes sense to me a lot. Tell me why. Do you relate to it, Smishy? Totally. I think I've always written to reflect places, areas, and awarenesses where there was was no one to share it with. So I'd write it down in its truest form to me. And when I would do that, I felt that in a way, I was no longer alone in that awareness. And so I would say there's quite a lot of things. I never thought about going into social justice, but I was acutely aware of injustices from a very young age. I saw it within my family structure. I thought I saw it in society. I saw how society perceived my family culture. I, you know, I like circles within circles and then the concentric circles, how we affect each other in society. I was so distressed when I'd see how children at school were treated certain children, either for racial reasons or poverty uh, or whoever their parents were perceived to not be, I had to write that somewhere. There was no one to talk about these things with. So I can appreciate why you feel emotional because I don't think I ever shared probably the majority of what I've written to this day. I think for everything I've written, that is maybe less than 10% of everything I've ever written. So I think when we craft words like that, it's almost like your signature, your scent, your fingerprint. It's something that's really, it's not something you can learn in a class. It's you. What about your poetry? Because you mentioned before that you've never shared that either. Is it for the same reason? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You, so you wrote about things or you wrote poetry about things that you felt like there was no hearer for? Yeah, and I think I'm also aware with two parents who are artists, <clears throat> I was exposed to critics at a young age. The who's who of critics came to my dad's shows and, and I would listen to them and I would just be literally enraged. I'd be enraged. I was like, who made this person a critic? Aren't critics supposed to guide people to excellence and let them know this art is here? When I'd hear them speak, I would think, hmm, they don't know anything about art. And how old were you <laughs> when you were thinking? Like six. <laughs> because 
I knew how many people, I knew what their readership was. I knew who their listeners were. That's what really distressed me because these artists were coming from that pure place of expression. How dare somebody categorize uh, how successful it will be when it hasn't even explored its greatest manifestation, you know? So, yeah, I think we need so much room for art appreciations. I think everyone should have to learn some form of art so we respect what really goes into, whether it's through words or painting or photography or singing or writing or even playing a little recorder at grammar school, you know, elementary school. And you're like, oh, now when I hear someone play, I have a new respect for it. Did you journal? Yeah. I did. I journaled a lot. About what? I think it was a way to process my feelings or my day or if I felt lonely. My journal was my friend. And would you write it to like to yourself or to the to the journal? Was it like letter writing? I would do both. You know, I think that when I first started, I didn't know what you were supposed to do. So I'd be like, dear Melody. And then I'd just like <laughs> write. And then I'm like, wait a second, I could write this to somebody else. And then so I'd be like, dear God. And then it just sort of, it wasn't like dear anybody. It was, it was just like today. I almost wanted it as like a, like a way to remember what had happened, like a time, time capsule. Oh, wow. That is so fascinating. Cloudy, don't you join me in this? You can see that very, the way she just like structured that, you can see that in her design wear. Like the themes and the, it's like time capsules of thoughts and ideas and colors and views and like emotion. It's so true with the stuff that she puts out. They're like time capsules of where she's at. And you know, nowadays, I don't know how, do you journal still, Mel, regularly? No, not, I go through cycles. But I feel like your book where you do all your drawings, that's kind of like your journal now. Yeah, totally. It's become more freeform. Pictographs. Well, yeah, I do that mostly. Actually, anytime I work with Julie one-on-one, like if I have a session with her, I love drawing my sessions. Like I'll draw something and then I'll write the things that she says um, or that she mirrors back to me. And then it just becomes this like beautiful thing that I can reference back to and it helps me remember That's really special. What about you, Claudia? Do you journal? I would like to have better diligence writing more regularly. Some of my favorite writers and people who I admire so much around like how prolific they are at putting stuff out, even if it's vulnerable, they have a daily practice of writing that I've never been able to keep up with any sort of regularity or for a long period of time in a way that I think would be helpful for me to develop my voice more. I think that's why I'm still so sensitive about it. (laughs) You know, but if I had, if I strengthened that muscle, if I was just writing every day, then I think it might be easier to share, to talk about it, to put it out. Most of what I've written in my life has been specifically for my eyes only, not because I didn't feel like there were hearers, because I've always had people in my life that was were, said they were willing to read, wanted to read. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I cannot share. I cannot. 
Because it's a deep part of you. It's not the part of you you share on the outside. I think it's very courageous to embody what's on your deepest, not just depth, which is profundity, but depth is also vulnerability. I've always loved bearing witness to vulnerability. I love a good cry. And there's certain vulnerabilities that I've been willing to share and others I'm like, oh, I don't want to share that. I don't want to talk about that. But, you know, after my sister's death, I actually have this really great memory with Melody when my sister died in 2016. And I, I would try not to cry when I talked about it. And there was one moment where I was with Mel and she just laughed. She was like, you can cry about your sister dying. Like, you're right. I can. I don't know why I'm so unwilling to. And it wasn't totally because I wanted everybody to think that I was strong all the time. And that's not even how I identify strength. But it was more like I didn't want to burden people with my vulnerability. But that's so weird because I love other people's vulnerability and it's never felt like a burden to me. So I don't even know where I got that message. Because you know you're not everybody else. Yes, that is true. That's why it's rare to find true friendship. This true friendship affords you the opportunities to grow in your strength and who you are in the world, while at the same time be human and be as vulnerable as sometimes. I mean, oh my gosh, I've experienced numerous times when I'm vulnerable, not by choice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just too much because too much happened all at once. Now, you do, you should be very wise with who you share your vulnerabilities with if you have that opportunity. But if you don't and you're stuck in a public situation and you're vulnerable and for any reason, you have to start really drawing on your greater knowledge to trust in people's spirit. You have to say, I need the spirit in you to respond to what's going on with me right now. Yeah. Can I say something about your guys' past episode? Of course. The Fruits of Death episode was so good. I've sent it to so many people. For some people, they don't even want to talk about any fruits because that would somehow be like acknowledging that something good came out of somebody dying. And how can we ever talk about anything like that? But these fruits and the ways in which you y'all talked about it, the language that you built around it was so comforting, so healing so necessary. I really feel like it's opening up a whole new like portal to thinking about these issues. So one of the fruits of losing my sister is that I'm really getting a deeper relationship with vulnerability and trusting people. I trust people in my life that I super love. I trust you both. There are other people I trust. But outside of that, I just, you know, I've never really felt like people can actually hold in the way that I can hold them. But I've been finding that people are way more beautiful and capable than I ever gave them credit for. Mm, I love that so much. Sometimes in the the moments I need the most, it'll come from the most random way. And then, of course, there's people consistently that I always feel held by. But I forget, too, or I don't want to burden. I still go through, I shuffle through those emotions regularly. You know, anytime I'm going through something and I talk to Julie, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I should have transformed this by now. (laughs) And what's her response when you try to apologize? Of course. She's like, what are you talking about? This friendship, it's just love. 
I mean, how can you do better than you're doing? You know, you have to, if you believe in each other, you already know they're doing their best. That, that's not a question. That, that's, it's more like sharing with compassion, like, oh no, what happened? Yeah, I have multiple friends in my life that have been struggling with the same thing for a long time. You know, some of them for decades, but it's not exactly the same. It's shifting, but, you know, to them it's the same. And so they feel really apologetic. And I have a friend recently who's been struggling with this thing for months now. And she asked me, do you do you not want to hang out with me anymore? Because I keep talking about the same thing over and over again. It's like, oh my God, please, please talk about this thing that's on your heart every single time you want to talk about it. I love you. You know, I want to be present for you. And I remember someone, I, I think it wasn't you, Mel, but it was somebody within our crew where I apologized for bringing up my sister's name, which I felt the need to do here too, but tamped it down. I was like, I'm sorry that I'm always sharing something or saying something about my sister. And, and the friend stopped me and was like, you never have to apologize ever. If you want to talk about your sister all day, every day for the rest of our friendship. <laughs> It was such a special little moment. I think when you have that, it's funny what you're saying, Cloud, but when you know you have that with someone, the the possibility of being vulnerable, the it's okay all the time, you don't have to get and feel exploited in that vulnerability. I think you get over that place faster when someone's there you know, most of us feel the opposite. Don't show me kindness. Don't put your hand on my shoulder because I'm just going to break down. If that's happening, that means you haven't had that at all. What is that about someone hugging you that makes you cry? Either turns on the waterworks or makes them even stronger. <laughs> Maybe it's that like some people feel uncomfortable with certain people being vulnerable, maybe we, we. Well, I don't know what that word is, but we sort of sequester them away. No, you have to be this to me. You can't be that. Do you ever see that, you guys? Yeah, I feel like I felt that way with my nieces and nephews, for sure. I felt like I needed to be the aunt that would hold them, that would create space for them, that would be a substitute figure in their life. And so if I was going to do all those things and I couldn't have needs of them. Do y'all feel that same way about younger people in your life? Definitely. I mean, I've always had younger people in my life. And I think I've always felt aware of the world that they faced. So I think I tried my level best <laughs> to not have needs when I was with them. That's the arrangement. I didn't mind it, though. It's kind of like I love in um, Sub-Sahara Africa how females, how getting older is a good thing, is a beautiful thing. When you're old enough, you can wear a scarf on your head, which means you're like a woman. You might even be a mother, and it you get respect if you wear a scarf on your head. And I remember when I saw that, I was like, wow, I just to watch their posture change with dignity. And I was like, oh, we need that here in the States. <laughs> we need it bad. You just made me realize that I wonder if our obsession with being young or youth here in the United States is also connected to our youth as a nation. And so I feel like that it sort of narrows our perspective. You know, like we're not a mature nation. <laughs> we're certainly not an elder nation. 
And I think that in some ways that might impact the ways in which we think about age and stages, what inspires and what we respect and what we admire. That's so true. That's so profound and also so um, tragic because the nation, the landmass, the nation is ancient and we don't have the dominant culture be the original cultures here. If Native peoples were part of the infrastructure and the voice of this nation, oh my gosh, then we could draw on wisdom and then we could enjoy aging and see it in its proper place in the universe, take our rightful place at every stage in age. You're so right. We cut off our roots and we're like, see, we can do better if we cut off our roots. Oh my God, exactly right, Julie. That's so, you're, you just like hit the nail on the head. And what's amazing is that we are, it seems like we're moving that direction a bit with like the land back campaigns that are taking place. And even here in California, a new, a new law has been passed around um, cultural burnings or controlled burnings that natives and indigenous tribes used to use in California in order to control wildfires. Like they just signed it into law to bring that back. You know, when young people, some young people, not all, and certainly not in all, all cultures, but definitely here in the United States, like they get to their teen years or their young adult years, and they think they know better than everybody. They definitely know better than their parents and, you know, know better than the elders in their family. And they have those old school ways of thinking. And we have these new innovative ways of thinking. But then at some point it circles back and they're like, mom, dad, tell me everything. <laughs> I really respect the way you raised us. Thank you so much. I'm sorry that I, you know, it's kind of what we're doing as a nation. Wow, that is so insightful, Cloudy. I tend to have rosy tinted glasses sometimes. So I don't know if it's that or if it's something else. But I think that things will be right no matter what at some point. And we can push to make it happen sooner or we can not pay enough attention and not engage and it's going to happen anyway, <laughs> you know, but it might be more painful if it comes later. If like Mother Earth, nature forces the issue. If, you know, the Earth is like, y'all have mistreated me entirely too long. I'm going to spit you out now so I can get it together and rebalance myself. That's going to happen. Or we can take climate change seriously and change our practices, especially those of corporations. Mm. Just to close it, because we're coming towards the close, I just wanted to talk about the role that you have now um, as the executive director of Four Freedoms, if you could tell us a little bit about that, because I feel like it's the role that I've seen you in that's really incorporated the most of you all in one place. It's a special place. Four Freedoms, a national arts organization, a network of artists that model and inspire civic engagement, civic engagement defined very broadly. And uh, my friends, Hank Willis Thomas, Eric Gottesman, Michelle Wu, and Wyatt Gallery started it together. At the time that they were putting it together, they created a super pack because it was like an artist's art performance kind of thing. And it was like an ironic sort of thing to do to create a super pack run by artists who weren't politicians, who weren't attempting to run for office. And they called me and they were like, hey, we want to do this. What do you think? And I was had been a practicing attorney for eight years or so. And I said, this is a terrible idea. Do not do this. You're going to get in trouble. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> 
And they're like, okay, cool. Thank you. Thanks for the advice. We're going to go do a super pack. I'm really glad they did, given where things are now. Uh, and over the years, I've helped participate or collaborate on certain projects they were doing in 2018. They uh, took the Norman Rockwell paintings that depicted the four freedoms that FDR spoke about, freedom of worship, freedom of speech, freedom from want, freedom from fear. And those Norman Rockwell paintings are really beautiful. And Four Freedoms decided to remix them or maybe update them in 2018 so that it looked more like the way the United States looks now. Lots more people of color, lots more people from visibly different religions, people with disabilities, people with visible disabilities included in the photos. And they're really stunning. One of them ended up on the cover of Time magazine. And it was called the largest collaboration of public art, you know, that this country's ever seen. So I, I helped with that project. But last year, 2020 summer, after my sister passed in 2016, I, I lost my ability for a bit to be at full capacity for a while, for years. I was like at 20% and 30%. And in 2020, summer was my first moment where I turned and looked at my husband, Harris, and I was like, I think I'm back. I'm at 100%. And then soon thereafter, I got a call from Hank. And in our conversation, at some point, he invited me to come, you know, direct for Freedoms. And my first response was, no, thank you. I love you all too much to work with you. Thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm honored. Goodbye. And then uh, he gathered the other folks and we had a meeting. And the way they presented it was exactly what you see, Melody. They said, look, this is the only place where you'd be able to be all yourselves at once. Four Freedoms sits at the intersection of art, creativity, commerce, politics, law, policy, and education. All of you in one place. How can you beat that? And so I decided to join for three months interim. And then it was awesome. So I'm still here 14 months later. So amazing. And so great to be seen by people who know you and love you. I've always had strong work ethic. So I showed up to work with all that I had, but it wasn't like joyful all the time. And now it's joyful. I really enjoy the work with you. I think it's meaningful and it's really trailblazing in some ways. And you can wear whatever you want. <laughs> I am encouraged <laughs> to dress as zany as possible. You guys, it's really cool, the stuff that we're doing. Part of the ethos of Four Freedoms is that we are inviting slash encouraging everyone to tap into the artists in themselves. You know, some people say they're not creative or they're not artistic or whatever. And for us, that just means that they haven't tapped into it yet. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist because we believe that when everybody starts to manifest the artists in themselves, then we can really see change in the world then we can actually access, you know, all these possibilities that we talk about or that we hope for, that we strive for, but we can really make them manifest if everybody is tapping into their creative potential. That's one of the things that we promote. And the other thing that I think is really important about what, what we focus on and center on is valuing artists. In one way is artists should be at every table and every conversation, every dialogue, you're thinking about changing this policy or making decisions, artists should be there. They will really help push the conversation forward. And in the other way, it's valuing them by allowing them to live sustainable lives, right? So they too can have save college savings for their children. They too can have healthcare. 
all the things that people who have more traditional jobs have access to, artists don't. In our society, they suffer a lot. And so we promote the idea that artists should always be compensated for everything that they do. If you have them come talk, offer them some sort of honoraria, et cetera, as a way of recognizing that, you know, what they're bringing to the table is needed. Well, Cloudy, we always ask this question at the end. What have you not seen or seen manifest that you thought you would by now, either in your life or yourself or the world around you? When I think about how hard Native folks and Black people specifically have been working to just be regarded, you know, as human, as people who deserve righteously a place, a spot, a seat at the table. Uh, When I think about how much work has gone into that for centuries and the fact that in the United States, it just still is not true. And on a global scale, it's just not true that people, that everybody believes that. I can't believe it's still not true. I know that we've made progress. I'm really proud of that. But we replaced slavery with incarceration. It actually got codified into the 13th Amendment. We got rid of slavery, but for people who are incarcerated, we're good with it. And it's just wild that it's 2021. And that's still the mentality. I know we're going to get there because I I think the human spirit, it, it makes it impossible to not get there. Even Generation X already has such beautiful ideas around race and human dignity in ways that none of the generations before saw it. So I know we're going to get there. I just wanted to see it, and I'm not sure if I will. Thank you so much, Cloudy. Thanks for letting me hang out with y'all. This was really fun. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find The Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. Thank you.